0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: you got to understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless.
2: so crazy about it's
0: just music
1: rock and roll was born in the 50s and by 1967 for better or worse it had grown up i'm greg Cott of the chicago tribune and i'm jim de from wbez and columbia college we
3: continue our exploration of the year 1967 by looking back to the historic monterey pop festival and later, Greg and I review the new album from Van Halen, which is back with original lead singer David Lee Roth. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news.
2: I've been knocking on the door that holds the throne hey! I've been looking for the map that leads me home I've been stumbling on good hearts turned to stone The road of good intentions is going dry as a bone We take care of our own We take care of our own Wherever this life's gone.
1: That was Bruce Springsteen with the E Street Band kicking off the 54th Annual Grammy Awards with a song called We Take Care of Our Own from his forthcoming album There was some question, Jim, whether Springsteen was going to reconstitute the East Street Band. He made it very clear that he is, even though Clarence Clemens, the great saxophone player, is no longer with the group. Springsteen is again going out on the road with the East Street Band later this year. He's also got a new album coming out. This is really the unofficial kickoff of that campaign. Of course, the big winner at the Grammys was the U.K. singer Adele. A lot of people had predicted ahead of time that she had a really good chance of winning all six Grammys for which she was nominated, she in fact did that, including the big three. Album of the Year, Song of the Year, Record of the Year. Song of the Year is a songwriter's award. Record of the Year is for the performer and the producer. She won in both of those categories. So that's a pretty big coup, but there's no doubt about Rolling in the Deep as the song of 2011. Her performance of the song, too, I think, Jim, had a lot of uh, people paying attention because it was her first public performance since she canceled her tour last year to go have vocal cord surgery. She came through okay. It's clear to me that the voice isn't back to where it was. But I don't think a lot of people are arguing that she didn't deserve those Grammys. For Best New Artist, kind of an upset. Bon Iver, an independent artist winning over a pretty stocked field of uh, mainstream pop acts. And then you uh, win the prize, Jim, if you guess that Alison Krauss, the bluegrass musician, is now the living artist with the most total Grammy award. She's now up to 28.
3: Greg, to me, the most moving moment of that endless telecast was Jennifer Hudson paying tribute to Whitney Houston. The news of Houston's death broke a mere 12 hours before the Grammys began, right? And so they gave a theme to this year's Grammys with many people paying homage and and, and the music industry kind of in mourning. And the ratings responded. 39 million plus viewers for this Grammy telecast, the second highest in history. It is so sad, but death remains the great career move mm-hmm. in popular music. I think what Hudson connected with was the soul that was always at the heart of Houston's performances. You know, you could take the girl out of the church, and Clive Davis really polished up her music. Hudson reconnected with something more important, that she came from the gospel world.
2: So goodbye, please don't I'm not what you, you need. And I will to love you.
3: I Greg, a week will you later, we have some numbers on a tremendous surge in sales in Whitney Houston's catalog she sold 101,000 albums in the days after news of her death and I will always love you a song that must be said she neither wrote nor was first to record but really claimed it forever as her own when it was on the soundtrack to the bodyguard that was downloaded Mm. 195,000 times
1: I know I was sick of hearing it after a while Well, Jim, I have to say that the biggest issue that a lot of people have with Whitney Houston's uh, music, the ones who are the non-believers, let's say, have a lot of problem with that slick production that I think weighed down a lot of the stuff that she did. And there's no doubt that every female singer in her wake, uh, Christina Aguilera, Mariah Carey, Lady Gaga, all the American Idol winners... Whitney's influence runs deep. Now, some people may say that influence is everyone wants to oversing. Mm. Whitney Houston did not oversing. I mean, I think if you listen to her best performances, she was completely within her range. She had a sense of drama about the way she would deliver a song. I use the way she sang the national anthem in 1991 prior to the Super Bowl as a great example of that. <laughs> And I think there are other examples in her career. Focus on that soundtrack, The Preacher's Wife, that came out in 1996. She starred in that movie. There are a number of gospel songs on that soundtrack that point back to her roots in the gospel church that indicate what kind of a singer she was and what kind of a direction her career might have taken had she been able to be more in control of her music over the last couple of decades. Here's a performance from that soundtrack. It's called I Love the Lord from The Preacher's Wife soundtrack, by Whitney Houston on Sound Opinions.
3: was Whitney Houston with I Love the Lord. The singer died February 11th at the age of 48.
2: I'd like to uh, introduce a perfect example of uh, what the world's coming to. It's uh, Jefferson Airplanes in France.
1: listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kot with Jim DeRogatis, and today is the second part of our look at the year 1967 and its importance in rock and roll 45 years on. In the first part, we looked at the uh, idea of the maturation of the album as an art form and the use of the studio as a recording instrument. And today, Jim, we're going to take it outside of the studio and into the live environment, the Watershed Festival of 1967, the Monterey Pop Festival, as sort of symbolic of the rock and roll emergence as a new music business that year. I think the model for both the business and the music changed significantly in 67. Now we don't want to put too much emphasis on the idea that all of a sudden everything changed in 67. Clearly things were already in the works in 65 and 66. There was this transformation going on with bands like the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Bob Dylan creating major work But 67, I think, is the year when it really became magnified because you had the emergence of all this new media, the Rolling Stones of the world, crawdaddies of the world covering this from a youth culture standpoint, but also the more serious adult publications, Time Magazine, the New York Times, all paying attention to this new art form and executives, people who want to make money saying, hey, wait a minute, if this can get on the front page of the New York Times, this youth festival in California and Monterey Pop, this means there's a future here. This is not just a fly-by-night art form. This is going to last, and people are going to make money off it. So one of the things I think we saw with Monterey, Jim we had this amazing lineup of performers Jefferson Airplane The Hoob The Birds Ravi Shankar Mamas and the Papas and we saw a lot of these bands getting signed to major deals immediately after Right Clive Davis at Columbia Records signing Big Brother and the Holding Company uh, Janis Joplin's band who were then managed by Albert Grossman who was Dylan's manager at the time He saw them for the first time at Monterey Pop It was a, it was a big awakening for a lot of these people Capitol Records signing Quicksilver Messenger Service and Steve Miller soon after the festival. Was over, Warner Brothers signing the Grateful Dead. You know, the money guys came in and started throwing the dough around. Well, the mainstream media is calling it the summer of love,
3: and we've all got to get a piece of it, say the great American corporations. You know, there is a social political context, Greg. Tim Leary is telling people, the Harvard professor, tune in. Turn on, drop out. People are beginning to change their style, their sexual habits, their their politics. Everything is blossoming. The cliche would have it, but there's a lot of truth there. I think Monterey, much more than Woodstock, two years later, stands as the pinnacle of the celebration of this as an art form. The festival, organized by promoter Lou Adler and John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, among others, took place June 16 to 18, 1967. You see, different numbers for how many people turned out, but tickets were 3 to $6. And that roster you went down was just extraordinary, what you got for that money. We're going to zero in on a few of the performers. Now, earlier you said rock's maturation, but I would say it's really the coming out party. It's debutante ball. Mm. In particular, this is true for two artists who overnight became superstars. Jimi Hendrix already had made serious inroads into the British market, but he had to go there. The Seattle boy had to travel across the ocean and he's playing with two Englishmen in his band. The experience, America was slow to recognize the brilliance of Hendrix. In 67 at Monterey, it catches. On
2: the Jimi Hendrix Experience.
3: reduce everything to the final song of his set. Most ironically, Hendrix ends with a cover of Wild Thing by the Trogs. These guys can't even play and Wild Thing's a silly song written by an American. He takes it somewhere completely different.
2: Well, I want to know for sure Come in, I <laughs> One more time again. Oh, shucks. I love you.
3: And I think it's important for the musical transformation much more than the big, visual, memorable, special effects trick. Mm-hmm. He pours lighter fluid on the guitar, and he sets it on fire. He conjures up the voodoo flames <laughs> out of his axe. You know, people remembered that, and Hendrix became a star because of it. But that was all shtick. His first album, Are You Experienced, had just come out the month before Monterey Pop, May 1967. His second album, Maxis Bold as Love, would follow before the end of the year, that December. What an extraordinary short period of time for all this music. What endures for me is not Hendrix's pyrotechnics and guitar heroics. It is the synthesis of deep strains of American music, the blues, soul. The sounds that would come to be called funk but aren't even really called that yet, with rock and roll, and then this interstellar overdrive, to borrow a a Pink Floyd phrase, that takes it to Mars. This is envisioning the oldest American musics and taking them somewhere completely different. And yeah he could play the guitar with his teeth and set it on fire. Who cares compared to those
1: other accomplishments? Well, and don't forget, Jim, this is sort of a transcontinental merger of sounds because, you know, here's this kid from the Pacific Northwest in America merging with this British rhythm section, Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding. And I think another element in that sound besides all those elements you mentioned was the free jazz thing that Mitchell and Redding brought to it. So here were these Brits channeling some of the free jazz that they were hearing from John Coltrane and Sun Ra and bringing that to Hendrix's Thing. so it was, it was truly boundary smashing on all levels.
3: The other big debut at the Monterey Pop Festival, Greg, is by Janis Joplin. Again, almost unknown the day before she performs a superstar the day afterwards you mentioned she would link up with albert grossman bob dylan's manager who would help make her a star first album isn't even out yet, comes out two months after Monterey Pop, Big Brother, and The Holding Company. But this young woman from Austin, Texas, with a voice that is timeless, it seems like centuries old, and here she is in her early 20s. We think of her as the prototypical blues belter soul shouter of the era, To me, it's not that that that's interesting about Joplin. It's the way she's synthesizing country western and blues and R&B and taking it into this new psychedelic realm. Rock is now 10 to 15 years old, right? And it's going somewhere completely new because of the experimentation of what we talked about last week, the studio, but also the drug influence and the breaking down of walls. You know, why can't I put country in my rock? Why can't I put blues in my jazz? Everybody's doing this. There's a wonderful moment in the D.A. Pennebaker film of Monterey Pop the Concert where you have Mama Cass Elliot, and I will say, I love Mama (laughs) Cass Elliot. She is one of the coolest people of all time. She's sitting, watching this Texan who she doesn't know perform, singing her heart out on stage, and she goes, wow, that's heavy. Sitting
0: down by my window, just looking out at the rain. Just looking at the rain. Some came along, honey, grabbed a hold of and it felt like a ball in shape. Well,
3: And Joplin's album, I think, is much more sophisticated. Everybody just thinks, again, it's about the soul shouting. It's not. Listen to that record and listen to the way that the band plays together. It's an extraordinary group that's taking rock somewhere new.
0: Down on me.
1: continue talking about the year 1967 and the live music industry coming of age in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX plus later in the show Diamond Dave and Van Halen back together again
0: Tommy Dorsey, the names may sound bizarre. There's Big Brother and the Holding Company, Simon and Garfunkel, Country Joe and the Fish, the Quicksilver Messenger Service, and the Grateful Dead. The Monterey Pop Festival is a declaration to the older generation that young people have arrived and they have established their own style of life and that they intend to live by it. In effect, it's a huge raspberry to everyone over 30. This is John Dancy, NBC News in Monterey, California.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're continuing our conversation about the year 1967 and its effect on rock and roll, specifically the live music business that it created that year. You just heard a little bit of the Mamas and Papas performance at the Monterey International Pop Festival in June of 67. And Jim, you know you have to understand that rock and roll really didn't have a signature event on par with things that were happening in other genres. Think about Montreux in the jazz world or Newport in the folk world. This was really the festival that put rock and roll on the map on that sort of scale as an art form. And you can draw a straight line from there to Coachella or Lollapalooza or Bonnaroo today. Let's bring Harvey Kubernick into the conversation because Harvey's done a lot of research on that event. He's co-author of A Perfect Haze, the illustrated history of the Monterey International Pop Festival. Harvey, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, let me talk a little bit about something that I came across a few years ago. When John Phillips was still alive, I interviewed him, and he talked to me as the key moment when Monterey Pop actually went from being sort of a a hazy possibility to an actual concrete idea was a casual conversation in late 66 involving Phillips and Lou Adler, the eventual producer of the concert. Paul McCartney was there. And he said the conversation revolved around the idea that you know is is rock really an art form? Has it made that transition from being sort of teen music into this more sophisticated format that deserved a festival that was celebrated as an art form what's your take about that whole spin on the generation of this event I
4: couldn't agree more it's really the the tipping point through interviews I conducted with Lou Adler and people present that night. Nobody ever thought rock and roll or pop music was going to be a vocation or it would go on for years. When are we going to get a real job? And and, and it was McCartney, along with uh, Lou Adler and, and Michelle Phillips and John Phillips and people that evening that really thought that pop music, rock and roll music, should be really viewed and, and, and chronicled as sort of a serious popular art form. Let's also really seriously try to take this music and put it on a national platform and I think that's exactly what John Phillips discussed with you. On behalf of
2: everyone who's worked so very hard to make this pop festival a reality, I'd like to thank everyone involved. And as you know our, our theme is music, love and flowers and the music will be here in a moment. we got the flowers when you came in the door. We hope that everyone here will supply the love so we have a good, really good festival for everyone involved. To open up the uh, first
1: Monterey International Pop Festival, we'd like to give you the association. So a three-day event, 32 bands, I believe. How do you winnow it down? It was a time when there weren't tons
4: of tours going on, so people were available. Um, The wish list included well, the Beach Boys were set to perform, but due uh, partially due to the Carl Wilson draft status, um, they chose not to. And also, Brian Wilson was a bit shaky at the time. Donovan was going to perform. He was on the board of directors or board of governors. He had a visa problem. There were lots of attempts to get people like Chuck Berry and James Brown, and especially Motown acts that, that didn't come together. But as far as
3: Things happen the way they're probably supposed to happen. Um, but people we did get, Harvey, Otis Redding, The Who, Jimi Hendrix, Ravi Shankar, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, The Birds, Buffalo Springfield. Okay, I'm going to ask you to put your rock critic hat on, take the journalist one off for a minute. Sure. What was a better festival musically? Forget about the historical ramifications, Woodstock or Monterey Pop two summers earlier?
4: I've always said it was Monterey pop. Not the fact that six of the same bands played at Monterey and then played at Woodstock. But, you know, I like the debut aspect, at least nationally, of some of the groups. Now that I've really spent some time with these festivals, they have very little in common. One was non-profit, one was done for profit. If you take that as the starting point, then you really see there isn't a whole lot of overlap or even a compare or contrast, you know, element to them. People didn't get paid to perform at Monterey. The artists did not get paid. And even the artists sat in the audience with the people in the audience and watched other bands. And I didn't think you saw too much of that at Woodstock.
1: I also don't think we should underestimate what this festival represented in terms of the macro picture of the music industry. We saw the music industry growing up, for better or worse, at Monterey. You suddenly saw the suits coming in to monitor these acts. The label people, promoters, management, who said, hey, wait a minute, there's some money here, guys. Let me tell you something. People at Monterey were a little bit
4: suspicious of these people. When you start seeing some long hairs and suits and tie people and Nehru people and the industry's hip, people starting to scout talent jerry wexler and i talked extensively about that he went up there to try to hook some fish as he said and he almost <laughs> you know clive davis told me that was a new sort of bar mitzvah for him in a weird way <laughs> that's the first time he realized he had ears as he really details how he had to make his move once um like janice joplin um you know you know hit him hard on on stage so The world changed there on a lot of levels. But Lou Adler points out after Monterey, artists had more more control as far as artwork, photos on their covers. There was a sense of naivety everybody had until Monterey. And it changed a, a little bit after Monterey. And then by Woodstock... You had things like soundtrack rights and movie rights and groups that weren't in the film due to management concerns. And I'm sure that little bit of that happened at Monterey, too, but it was
3: it was governed very closely. We're talking with Harvey Kubernick, author of A Perfect Haze, the Illustrated History of the Monterey International Pop Festival, here on Sound Opinions. Harvey, one of the acts on the bill was The Who?, They were already huge in the U.K., but this propelled them into the American mainstream. In fact, three months before he did it on the Smothers Brothers show, Pete Townsend surprised everyone at Monterey by destroying his guitar. Sure. You spoke with him for the book, and you also talked to Roger Daltrey. What was his take looking back on that weekend?
4: He had such a blast discovering California, Uh, from the hotels to the girls at the fairgrounds, to just the vibe of the event. It brought out maybe the inner flower child in him. I know with Townsend, he had some concerns about uh, the sound system and some of the new equipment that the Who were bringing over. This might have been one of the only times I think, and even though it was on an email to me, that Pete Townsend... Appeared to be nervous a little bit about a show, how the band would go over because you're playing, in their case, some American music, whether it be summertime blues and Eddie Cochran thing, or My Generation, which is largely influenced by Moe's Allison, as far as the writing of it.
1: It's also the birthplace of, uh, I think, the big rock show. You know, Obviously, you had festivals prior to this, but none so focused on rock and roll as Monterey. Ever since, you've had hundreds, thousands of them, it, and the legacy continues today. I think Lollapalooza or Coachella are all children of Monterey pop, whether they know it or not.
4: It's a very good point, and I've had people like Paul Toilette, the actual promoter of Coachella, email me and say, Uh, what an impact Monterey had on him, not because he did his first shows promoting at Lou Adler's Roxy Club in West Hollywood, but when he saw the Monterey Pop film, um, he realized the vitality of the multi-stacked, multi-night, day and evening lineup, which was a direct antecedent to Coachella. And let's face it, uh, one of the investors of Woodstock, in one of the pitch meetings just before he cut the check, saw the movie Monterey Pop, and that you know, made him want to get involved in the Woodstock Festival. There's some heads being really opened by all this collective effort, I'd like to feel.
3: Harvey Kubernick is the author of A Perfect Haze, the illustrated history of the Monterey International Pop Festival, as well as Canyon of Dreams, the magic and the music of Laurel Canyon. Harvey, thanks for joining us.
4: Loved being here.
3: This is Sound Opinions, and we're talking about 1967 and the impact of the Monterey Pop Festival 45 years later. Greg, as rock critics, usually we don't like to take anything at face value, especially about a certain year or time or place being a pinnacle of rock and roll. But I've spent a lot of time looking at 1967. I wrote a book about the development of psychedelic rock, and I can't emphasize enough the way the windows were just thrown wide open and how liberating it was for rock and roll to bring in all these different influences and embraced the music of the world, really. The Birds were some of the first to bring Indian sounds into rock and roll before the Beatles. George Harrison was inspired by what the birds had done. The Birds are my favorite band on the Monterey pop Bill. This is a difficult time for them. Their hit-making heyday was a little bit past. They had had an album in 66 and included their best song, 8 Miles High. But the group wasn't having the chart impact it had had. At Monterey Pop, Again, that breaking down of boundaries, they are beginning to go into country. They would get there in a big way eventually with Graham Parsons. But Chris Hillman is coming to the fore as a songwriter, and he's written several of the most interesting songs on what would become their 1967 album, Younger Than Yesterday, including So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star with Roger McGuinn.
2: So you want to be a rock and roll star, then listen now to what I say.
3: The tell you about. They are sneering at the monkeys and the idea that you can just manufacture a rock band. But what's interesting about this song, even more than the idea and the fact that it's so catchy and wonderful, we know the Tom Petty cover, right? They bring in Yu Masakela, a South African trumpet player, to play this trumpet solo in the middle of this song. That's the kind of innovation and thinking that we're seeing, you know, in Joplin, in Hendrix, in The Birds, that so epitomizes to me the psychedelic heyday of 67, and there would be others that would come.
1: I think you're absolutely right, and I, I think it's especially true of southern soul and funk, which had its big emergence in 67 to a whole new audience that it had never reached before. The crucible moment for Otis Redding occurred at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. I mean, yeah. he was the middle-night performer. He had the headlining slot on Saturday, which was somewhat unusual. The people who knew knew that this guy was going to blow people away. But there were a lot of people in that audience who had never even heard of Otis Redding because he essentially had been confined to performing in the Southern Chitlin Circuit up until then, which meant basically he was playing two fellow African-Americans in the South and really wasn't getting widespread airplay. At Monterey, he crossed over in a big way.
2: It's been a real groovy day and a great evening and here. Let's bring on with a big hand. Mr. Otis Redding.
1: comes on stage giving his straightforward Otis Redding show, and he's got Booker T and the M. Cheese as his backing band. Yeah. He's got the horn section from the Marques, so he's got a full, loaded arsenal, plus all those great songs that he had recorded. He'd had six albums up to that point to choose from, so he had the very best songs that he could play that night. He translated to the love crowd, as he called them, in a big way. By the end of that show, people were, they knew who Otis Redding was, and suddenly he had become a star.
0: This is the love crowd, right? We all love each other, don't we? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Let me hear you say, "Yeah!" yeah. yeah. Alright. I've been loving you too long to stop now.
1: And what he had done also was expose that audience and and rock musicians to what was going on in the South. I mean, those great rhythms that were coming out of Memphis at the Stack Studios there, and also in Muscle Shoals in Alabama, suddenly a lot of rock musicians started gravitating down there to get their sounds because of what Otis Redding did at Monterey. They go, man, this guy's got something that we aren't hearing in our own records. Let's get some of that.
0: One more time now, yeah, just, like oh!
2: oh! just one more time, one more time. Do just one more time.
1: Now what was interesting about Otis, he took something out of Monterey as well. The song, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, that wouldn't have been written if he hadn't experienced the love crowd, as he, yeah. as he said, if he had not visited California and had this idyllic experience at Monterey. He came back a few months later and with Steve Cropper wrote that song.
0: Sitting in the morning sun
2: I'll be sitting in the evening comes Watching the ships roll in then I watch him roll away again, yeah.
0: I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time.
1: It was released, uh, tragically enough, After he died, he went down in a plane crash later that year, became a superstar when Sitting on the Dock of the Bay was released. His tribute, really, to that whole California scene that he had experienced. Well, that's the
3: tragic downside of Monterey. You know, Otis, Mm -hmm. superstar after his death. Janice, superstar after her death. Jimi Hendrix, not long to
1: continue after Monterey. Yes, indeed. And it's interesting how many of these people actually played that festival and only had a few more years to really experience the fruits of it. But Otis did establish that southern sound at Monterey. Unfortunately, he didn't live long enough to sort of bring it to that wider audience. But one artist who did not perform at Monterey was able to carry it through further, and that was Aretha Franklin. Mm. Now, people think about Aretha in the context of all those great funk and R&B songs she recorded. She really wasn't that kind of an artist up until this point. People forget, maybe, that in the 50s, she was singing pure gospel. Then she got signed to Columbia Records. John Hammond signed her, but he wanted her to do do Broadway show tunes and ballads. She was perceived as somewhat of a jazz singer, so she really hadn't crossed over to pop. Jerry Wexler finally signed her to Atlantic Records, the great producer who had worked with people going back to, like, Ray Charles, and said, Aretha, you should be doing R&B. Do our thing. Now, Wexler was already aware of what was going on in those southern studios with his artist, Wilson Pickett. He had brought Pickett down to Alabama to record down in Muscle Shoals with those great rhythm sections. He wanted to do the same for Aretha. Now, understand, she's this northern girl, grew, you know, grew up in Detroit, was based in New York City. So here was this amazing moment where you have this African-American artist from the north going down south, and she was recording with largely a white rhythm section down in Alabama. These guys were largely white guys who had this feel for R&B and soul. When she went down there, one of the first things she recorded, I never loved a man the way I love you. All of a sudden, wow, things (laughs) changed for Aretha. She thought that was extraordinary, what happened to her in that studio that day. Now, what also happened when she was down there, she had, she got into a little tussle with uh, one of the horn players, and she had a bad experience. So after a couple of songs recording, after a couple days, she decided to leave. You know, this, this Southern thing isn't for me. I'm going back to New York. Wexler, though, understood what he had heard in that studio was extraordinary, and this is exactly the direction Franklin should continue in. They went on to continue recording what would be the album I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You in New York, but he flew that rhythm section up to New York to record with her. song though that even topped that one and this ties in with Otis Redding Otis Redding performed Respect at the Monterey Pop Festival people forget that he wrote that song what do you
0: want but you got it what you need baby, you got it. all I'm for the respect when i respect i my mother
1: all I wanted to do Aretha one upped Otis in one way I mean Otis's version is extraordinary but she took it somewhere else by the virtue of the fact that she was an African-american female singing the song whereas Otis was singing about sort of a domestic situation you know between a man and a woman Aretha universalized the song. She turned it into an anthem, not only for African Americans in the midst of the civil rights movement, but for women and the rise of feminism, that to this day I think really symbolizes what happened in that year.
3: Greg, as we wrap up our discussion of 1967, I've just got to underscore again that I think to me as a critic, as a lover of the music made in that era, the enduring legacy is this idea that there are no boundaries, that all music can be incorporated into rock and roll. I remember talking to Nick Mason of Pink Floyd, who we talked about in the first part of our 1967 show, and he said, you know what was magical about those days was, quoting The Who... We could see for miles. And Mm -hmm. as rock got older, we felt that we could only see for yards or feet. Mm -hmm. The the vision
1: narrowed. The roots of that were definitely at the Monterey Pop Festival in 67, Jim. It was a big dinner bell ringing out for these music biz professionals who suddenly realized, hey, there's an art form here. It has legs. It has an audience that is going to be around for years, if not decades. Not a fad. Not just a style that's going to be gone tomorrow. Let's figure out a way to mold it and sell it, commodify it. And the easiest way to do that was to create niches again. So for three or four years, you had this kind of soup going on of all these styles, mixing and matching, and then the pros took over. By 70, 71, 72, you started to see radio fragmenting into formats. Funk separate from rock, never the twain shall meet. But for a few short years, with 1967 being the peak of it, a lot of waves were set in motion that dictated rock for the next 35 to 40 years. And in a way, we've come full circle from that because the Internet has thrown everything up for grabs again.
3: So what are your thoughts on this watershed year 1967? Were you lucky enough to be in the audience at Monterey? Did you make the 14-hour Technicolor dream? Call us at 888-859-1800. Next up, Greg and I review the new release by Van Halen, back with original frontman David Lee Roth. I can see for miles and, miles and
2: miles and miles and miles and miles, oh yeah. If you think that I don't know about the little tricks you play, I never see you and deliberately put things in my way. Well here's a poke at you, you're gonna choke on it too You're gonna lose that smile, because of the wild I could see for miles and miles I could see for miles and miles I could see for miles and I, I was so far away I saw you holding... Tattoo, Tattoo Show me your dragon magic Tattoo, tattoo.
1: So Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis, and that is Tattoo from the first Van Halen album of the 21st century. A different kind of truth. This band has been away for quite a while. The Revolving Door Lead Singers in Van Halen is a soap opera in the making. But the band goes back to uh, the 70s. Pasadena, California uh, came out of the box with a best-selling debut album in 1978, is now, according to the Recording Industry Association of America, the 19th best-selling band or artist of all time with sales of over 56 million albums in the United States alone. Founding members Eddie Van Halen on guitar, Alex Van Halen on drums, have been cornerstones of the band since the beginning. Everything else has changed in recent years. They're back to their original lead singer, David Lee Roth, who left the band in 1984 after the string of their biggest hits. They had their two 10 million-selling-plus albums with Roth in the lineup. Then he left was replaced by Sammy Hagar, briefly replaced by Gary Cherone, Roth came back, Hagar came back. Now Roth <laughs> is finally back in the fold. The longtime bass player Michael Anthony, he got kicked out of the band and was replaced by Eddie Van Halen's son, Wolfie, who was then a teenager. Now this album, a different kind of truth. Here's a track from it, Bullet Head, from Van Halen on Sound Opinions. I, right over your
2: dog, boy. I can feel your pain. If everything is- the wrong way, bullet head. By the into your crazy dead. up up bumba, bullet head. Oh. Got a different kind of truth. bullet head. Yeah. Yes, you are a danger. I just like you. How many roads must a man walk down before he hits his loss? And do you really, really drive this way? Just to piss me off. Hey. Through. Yeah, I'm rolling slowly, but I'm ahead of you. Bullet head of mood into your crazy day. Bubba buff bullet head Got a different kind of truth. Bullethead. Yes, you are a danger. I got just by like you. Well I'm a love of the wrong, baby. When well, I'm a bullet
3: That was Bullethead by Van Halen from the 12th studio album of its career, A Different Kind of Truth. Greg, you were waxing rhapsodic in your review in print in the Chicago Tribune about this record and this band taking you back to the days of, I quote, mullets, muscle cars, and first visits to strip clubs. I'm sorry, but I never experienced any of that. To me, Van Halen was spandex sophomoric double entendres and hammer-ons, you know, Eddie Van Halen running up and down the fretboard. I never really appreciated this band. The only thing I did like was David Lee Roth. You know, he had this ineffable enthusiasm. The older frat Buddy, who threw the best party now he has become the embarrassing uncle who dyes his hair embarrasses everyone at the wedding and you just hope that he doesn't break a hip as Eddie Van Halen did when he does those splits on the dance floor because he's still a couple of years but just a few away from Medicare coverage this album, the best you can say is that Roth is not lusting after teenagers. he's lusting after soccer moms. The lyrics are incredibly insane. He's coined a new word for the English language. You are not a bombshell that he, he desires, but a momshell. I can't listen to the lyrics. I can't listen to Van Halen's "Pointless." Endless guitar soloing. His brother has always been a leaden drummer. And Wolfgang is no Michael Anthony. You know, he doesn't have the Jack Daniels bottle. I, <laughs> I, I hate this record.
1: I never much liked the band. This is a trash it record. Well, if you never liked the band, you're not going to like this record. I have a, an affection, I admit, for the early Van Halen. I think David Lee Roth is the only singer that Van Halen should ever have. I think those years with Hagar were pretty terrible. I've forgotten about the Gary Sharon record, as has every other Van Halen fan. You're taking it much too seriously. This band is always about the party. They're never going to be about anything else. I think it would have been a stupid move on their part if they wanted to grow up and make a serious rock record.
3: But 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 these are 58-year-old guys Ab- now partying.
1: A- absolutely, and so is their audience. What they're getting from Van Halen on this record is an exact representation of where the band left off in about 1984. Well, six of the songs are demos from the 70s. Exactly. And from that standpoint, I find the songs listenable for two reasons. One... I love what you were alluding to earlier. David Lee Roth doesn't take anything seriously, including himself and Eddie Van Halen we've had this argument many times, but I think Eddie Van Halen is a true guitar innovator, and I think he had something to prove on this record. I think he read Sammy Hagar's autobiography that came out, his memoir, or whatever you want to call it, a couple of years ago. He was basically saying Eddie Van Halen's washed up. Van Halen came back to this record with something to prove, and I think his guitar playing is back to the level of where he was around 84, 83, when the band was really, really good. So, it's big, dumb, fun arena rock, and if that's what you're in the market for, Van Halen does it about as well as anybody. This is a Burn It record for me.
3: Yeah, I was wondering why you came in here with
1: the mullet this morning. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim,
3: we have an in-studio visit from the hip-hop artist Dessa. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, with the able assistance of Annie Minoff and our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He's still hot, 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 hot for teacher.
1: sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
0: New messages. Hi guys, this
4: is Jeff from near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I was glad to hear your review of Lana Del Rey because uh, she's inescapable right now. You know, it's not necessarily the hype that I object to. What I object to are the lousy songs. I I, I guess I'm rooting for her, but, you know, this is your big debut, and what do we get? We get I'll love you till the end of time. Oh, the worst is uh, heaven is a place on earth. You know, if if you're cribbing from Belinda Carlisle on your first big shot at stardom, I just got to wonder how terrible that first album was that she
1: rejected. Thanks for a great show every week, guys.
0: Hey guys, this is Lauren in Greensboro, North Carolina. I just finished listening to your first love song show. I love the songs you chose, but I couldn't help noticing a big gaping hole where Every Day by Buddy Holly should have been.
2: Every day it's getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way
0: it completely captures the happy and excited but nervous and scared feeling everyone gets when they experience their first love. Even the musical instruments sound like toy pianos and children's toys and my boyfriend who's actually a musician even found his first love which is music when he heard Buddy sing this song when he was a kid. Thanks. Bye. Come what may
2: do you ever long for true love from
0: Hi guys, this is Laura calling from Afraid in New York. I just finished listening to your um, first love show, and it reminded me of 4-H camp in the 70s. (laughs) The first year I went, I was eight, and I fell in love with an older boy. And the last week at camp every year, we had to stand around the flagpole and sing, I'll never find another you, I I think by the Seekers. The best gift I ever got was one week I uh, came home from 4-H camp and I was all sad and I was unpacking my suitcase and he had found the 45 of I'll never find another you and the best gift a nervous him could have given an infatuated me better than adult relationship gifts like gold and diamonds. Thanks for the show. Bye.
1: Hey guys, this is John from Chicago. I know you've already done an Unrequited Love Songs show, but for many of us, especially those of the
4: socially awkward tribe, First Love and Unrequited Love were one and the same.
3: With that in mind, I'd like to nominate Billy Bragg's The Saturday Boy. He's got the sweet innocence of 13 and the wit of Emily Kane. In this case, it's about a boy pining for a girl that he eventually realizes will never like him. The classic love song for uh, the slow starters amongst us, uh, Cheers.
2: I'll never forget. The first day I met her That September morning was clear and fresh The way she spoke and laughed at my jokes And the way she rubbed herself against the edge of my desk She became a magic mystery to me and with... Sit together in double history twice a week and No more messages.
3: To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.